0: I know you guys have missed books, and I've missed it too. (laughs) Hi everyone, and welcome to The Arts Report, your weekly fix of arts news, reviews, and interviews for April 4th, 2012. We're on CITR 101.9, CITR.ca. You can find us on Twitter, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us right now wanted to tell you guys a little bit about what I did this week, because that's, you know, I'm out and about. I'm looking at shows, seeing what's interesting in the city. I just saw The Importance of Being Earnest, which is the arts club theater company. I saw that last week with the uh, Giants and Sunday Services' Ryan Beal in the lead earnest role, one of two. And just before we saw the show, my partner and I, uh, we read a review by Colin Thomas, who is notoriously hard on theater. And that's fine. We're really into being critical and honest here at The Arts as well. But I found, I really did, I found that he was a little too harsh in terms of the bigness of the comedy. The play, even as written, is... A farce, and it is a comedy of errors uh, in a very high-minded, high-written way. Oscar Wilde, obviously a genius, but he made the made these comments about the bigness of the comedy. Uh, he called out a fart joke, which everyone loves—a fart joke. Come on, and he said that he thought the director thought he was funnier than Oscar Wilde. Now, theater is obviously about interpretation. You have something that's been around for a very long time. Um, Anything from something that's contemporary to something that's from Shakespeare or something that's classical, you are still going to be interpreting. I don't think that he tried to be funnier than Oscar Wilde. In fact, I thought it was quite true to form. But right from the beginning of the play, you have these huge props, an oversized hat, an oversized mirror. You also, uh, in the garden, you have oversized plants and set scenery and oversized luggage the handbag and if you've seen The Importance or read it you know what I'm talking about the handbag plays a a very important part that's actually normal sized a little disappointing but overall you knew it right going into it that you were going to have this over the top fun just classic piece and I really enjoyed it thought it was thoroughly delightful very broad humor Um, didn't really necessarily bring anything modern to it so I think it really was true to form so Colin Thomas calm down Uh, I enjoyed the Discorder fundraiser last week. Adulthood and Man Your Horse were really amazing. Those are the ones I really enjoyed. And, of course, um, we had some TV. But I won't talk about TV because that's not local, but Game of Thrones, you guys. So I wanted to tell you guys a little bit about a festival that's coming up in April. It starts next week, and it's the Tremors Festival. And it runs from April 10th until the 28th. And it's contemporary... Plays and it's put on by Rumble Productions, which has been around for 20 years in Vancouver. And they're really focused on up-and-coming work. They have workshops, and or workshops, as they call them. And they even have a, a showcase for new artists. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. But one of the plays that I'll be seeing next week is called The Last Jay- Days of Judas is Iscariot. And, of course, you know him as Judas. Now, this is written by Stephen Adley... Gurgius and directed by Stephen Drover and he is the interim artistic director of Rumble Productions Uh, and this play is being presented by apparently every single theatre company in Vancouver. No, maybe not every company but Rumble Productions, The Colch, Pound of Flesh Theatre, New World Theatre and Pacific Theatre are all involved in supporting this so they're really uh, interested in this play and why is that? It's a contemporary portrayal of Judas on Trial Mother Teresa, Freud, Jesus, and even a high school, college football coach um, are present for the trial. So it's a very interesting and contemporary view on Judas' role in mythic history. It's an adult-themed piece full of adult language, I was told to mention. And expect something that is not classical, medieval Dramaturgy. It is about forward thinking spirituality. And that's something that Pound of Flesh Theater and Pacific Theater are interested in in their own different ways. So uh, last week I caught up with Stephen Drover, director of uh, Last Days. And the interim artistic director of Rumble Productions, uh, which puts on Tremors, as I mentioned, during rehearsals for Judas at uh, the Progress Lab, which is actually just off Commercial Drive. And we talked about the play and we talked about, um, you know, the ideas involved in a modern retelling of The Trial of Judas. But first, he filled me in on why the Tremors Festival is Rumble House's masthead event. Here we go. Uh,
1: An important part of Rumble's programming is mentoring uh, emerging talent. And the Tremors Festival is an opportunity for Rumble Productions to to give a leg up to young companies that normally might not have an opportunity to produce on a a larger scale. The companies that are involved in the festival are... uh, Small companies that don't have operating money, probably don't have an office, don't have a great deal of infrastructure, and probably would not have the opportunity to produce um, on a higher level, like at the culture and like with this level of publicity and this level of covering. So it's a a good opportunity for for Rumble Productions to give assistance to younger companies and foster the next generation of emerging companies.
0: And you also talk about the focus of Rumble and Tremors on contemporary stories and contemporary productions can you define what that means for rumble and for tremors
1: generally it's looking at new work i mean it's a very debatable definition of what contemporary is (laughs) the very basic definition of contemporary is that the playwright is still alive and that's not always the case so one of the shows in tremors this year is by samuel beckett who died just a while ago so i think for us contemporary uh is defined by plays that reflect a a contemporary perspective, issues that we're dealing with now or things that we're thinking about or things that are still important to us on an everyday level, even if the playwright wrote them 50, 60 years ago and something resonant about it that makes us feel like this is a play of today. Judas Iscariot is based on historical and biblical characters, in some cases, incidents that are several thousand years old, but it really is about how those things are reflected uh, today and how the, how a contemporary perspective uh, interprets them.
0: And it's multiple perspectives because in the story it's a trial, and the play brings in personalities such as Mother Teresa and Sigmund Freud, which obviously is out of time for for Judas as a as a mythical figure.
1: Um, that's a good way of looking at it. Uh, it is very anachronistic in that sense that it, it it takes characters from from biblical times and characters from today and characters from other points in history and kind of presents them all in one place. This is some, one of the things we're talking about in rehearsal: is when and where are we? And that, that's not, not a very firm answer to that question, because it has a fluid sense of time and a fluid sense of, of place. That being said, the playwright has very consciously said, I'm not going to present to you a biblical Jesus, or a biblical Judas, in the sense that all the saints and all the biblical characters talk like you and I do, and in, in some respects, use uh, very, very foul language. I think that one of the inspiring things that the playwright took was if if Jesus were alive today and he was hanging out with prostitutes and fishermen and, and uh, questionable characters, you'd probably hear some colourful language. I think that the playwright is interested in exploring the idea that you can find God in the most unlikely of places and not in uh, necessarily a church or a, a quote-unquote holy location that in the dirt on the street you can find great moments of inspiration in spirituality. And I think that placing it in a very contemporary context makes it immediately real to us in a contemporary perspective and, and pulls it down off any kind of holy pedestal that we've placed it on.
0: When you're talking about turning from spirituality and turning from God, is that specifically religious or is it more the the very conversation? Those are two different Things.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the, the playwright is admittedly God-haunted is the mm-hmm. word that's been used to describe him. Is that He grew up Catholic and he's a lapsed Catholic and there was a point in his life where he consciously turned his back on Catholicism and on the church. Here's an example. One of the great influences for the playwright's um, writing and for some of the work that we're doing in the room is a, a Trappist monk called Thomas Merton who was uh, who was christian of course but towards the end of his life he was getting very very interested in uh, in eastern religions and he was looking at the uh, the similarities between um between catholicism and zen buddhism and zen buddhism doesn't talk about god it talks about the universe and being one with the universe and so he was really interested in how all those things are the same thing and how it's you know as as much as we tend to put god in quotation marks i think the play strongly does that and says kind of without being a caveat and without without apologizing, says whatever that means to you and whatever that relationship to a divine thing means to you, maybe it's time that you think about that and make it a personal thing rather than run out and go back to church. And I don't think the play is saying that. And I'm not interested in saying that either. Um, but I do think that there's, it, the question it puts forward is what do you, how do you consider your own salvation your own soul or your own afterlife or whatever that is it it helped us in it helps us in the rehearsal room to think about it this way that the the trial is taking place today Mm -hmm. and that judas iscariot has been languishing in hell for two thousand years and that we haven't thought about it for a while and when the saints appear to appear in the play they're appearing as kind of washed up characters who aren't called on as much as they used to be because i don't think we call on them very much and God doesn't make an appearance in this play there's no character called God even though there's a character called Jesus and I think that that's that's a very contemporary reflection if this play were written 500 years ago if this were a medieval morality Mm -hmm. play it would be much more infused with with uh, with a sense of biblical period Uh, I think that the playwright is is interested in if this were to happen today what would these people look and sound like so even though it's kind of like an out of time thing and it's kind of in a very uh, very fluid time and space it is a, a firmly rooted in today, and I think you know the playwright might argue that the play takes place in New York City mm-hmm. because they talk about being in New York and they talk about places in New York. You know, we're exploring the a bit more universality than that.
0: So that was Steven. Uh, Steven Dover, the director of Judas, and that will be playing as part of the Tremors Festival from uh, April 10th to April 21st. Uh, The festival itself spans April 10th to April 28th, and the shows that you can check out are Giant Invisible Robot uh, at the CULCH from Stars and Hearts Theatre, and that's actually a one-man show with Jason McDonald about a child and his giant, killing, invisible, imaginary machine. Endgame, uh, which is the Little Mountain Studios and Main Street Theater. Uh, it's actually Samuel Beckett, uh, with again, with Ryan Beal. who's getting around. A Last Resort at The Colch, um, and that's Rumble Productions in Rough House. Uh, and actually the same team that did Tiny Apocalypse for 2008 Tremors Festival. There's also a showcase on April 15th. And if you are a theater or artistic performer of any kind, you get three minutes to showcase yourself to the various um, people that will be in the audience, people from the Vancouver theater scene that will be interesting um, to get in touch with. And it's a way to kind of audition without having to audition is how they describe, described it. Um, and then finally, you have Work Shocks, which is April 21st to 22nd for high schoolers. And that's something that they can work on their own work. And it's a way to really bring up the next generation of you know entertainers Um, so anyway check that all out on rumble.org slash tremors and uh, I'm going to see it next week so I'll let you know uh, what's happening we are going to take a quick break and when we get back we will be talking um, about Amusa with Adam Yanus
2: The federal government is trying to ram through a set of electronic surveillance laws that will invade your privacy and cost you money. The plan is to force every phone and internet provider to surrender our personal information to authorities without a warrant. The worst part of their invasive, all-encompassing surveillance scheme is that you have to pay for it out of your own pocket. Send Ottawa a message by signing the petition at stopspying.ca. That's www.stopspying.ca. Thank you.
0: Wow, that was really intense. Very important issue, though. Um, And I wanted to just say something um, live, because I couldn't find the recorded PSA. Tomorrow, tomorrow is the AMS block party. And this is going to be a lot of fun. Mastercraft is playing Mother Mother. Um, You have, uh, I know, who else is playing? A bunch of people from from the local realm. So please come down. It's at... uh, It's on campus. It's going to be a big, fun party, and uh, I think it starts early afternoon. So you can check it out on the AMS website. So I have Adam in studio here. Adam, are you ready to get on mic, or should I stall a little bit longer? There I am. There you are. Hi, Still Megan. figuring out these. I was just going to say my plan was to say, uh, you know, this is the third show I've done and the first one without a guest. But you uh-huh. just, you just, you know, you're not the art director anymore. You just, you keep coming back.
3: What? I'm not the arts director? <laughs> oh, man, you're right. No what one's the heck gonna, am I doing here?
0: No one's going to tell me well, Megan, what you, to
3: do. You, you're doing a great job. Um, Aw, thanks. Enjoying the show.
0: Now, um, you are not just here to say Hi. Um, what? even though I find that, months. I mean, obviously I am a big draw, so you're not just here to say hi. I'm going to find uh, your clip while you introduce uh, your I, piece I cannot.
3: I cannot because I don't have a uh, script.
0: Oh, you don't have the script. Okay. So you're just going to watch while I introduce your piece?
3: Unless you want to turn up the, uh, the font size on that screen and I could probably read it from here. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> okay. I could do that. This will be fun. This would be, like, a, a, a fun challenge for me. Um, sure. Well, okay. Uh, well, I interviewed this band, uh, Amusea. Uh, I saw them uh, perform at the Cellar uh, about a month ago and uh, sat down with them here at the CITR Studios a few weeks uh, after after their show. And um, they're an interesting band because they their roots, I guess, as band members are in, a, in like, heavy instrumentation. Like, they love to do... Uh, really rich uh, soundscapes, and then they only only recently have they added a, a lead singer and and done more of a uh, a, a typical rock band sort of uh, format away from their like heavy instrumental stuff that they did before so so this is the kind of stuff we talked about in the interview. Um, so should I should I even read it now? I feel like I've made like a, a good introduction. Just
0: uh, I think you have. Offhand. I I think I yeah. Well, wait. Don't wrench yourself patting yourself on the back there. <laughs> um. Yeah. You guys. You says here that you uh, talked a little bit to uh. This, well, I'll say this: the they, they're out
3: with their new album, uh, "Time Will Tell," and they recently celebrated their release. That's the one that I saw them do at the cellar. And uh, when they came in uh, to the CITR studios to talk to me. Um, they they talked about finding a lead singer, Adrian, uh, who could keep up with the band's adventurous uh, rhythms and all their their soundscapes. And and we also talked in the interview about uh, motivation problems. When I'm doing air quotes here,
0: um, always an effective radio, always an effective style? radio
3: technique. Yeah, that uh, commonly afflict all artists. You know when you know uh, artistic people, uh, and I would include myself in this, get. Uh, Annoying,
0: temperamental, (laughs) stubborn. (laughs) Quiet, you. (laughs) Quiet.
3: Um, We're very good under pressure. We're very good last-minute workers. We're very inspired by... By upcoming deadlines, but when those deadlines aren't there, or when the motivation for whatever reason is lacking, um, us artsy types uh, have a harder time to function in the world. <laughs> so... Okay. So, so, yeah, so this came up. We're
0: going to talk future. about... We're going to hear Amusia talk about how artists cannot function in yes, the real world. But first, uh, <laughs> to start
3: us off, uh, here is Schaefer from the band, describing the kind of music that Amusia aspires to.
0: Here we go.
4: For me, there's records that are timeless, and you know, I, I put, like... Dark Side of the Moon and and Rush's 2112 and Radiohead's uh, OK Computer and albums like that that Mm -hmm. are just timeless and truly great and if I could make and be a part of a record that is that great and that Mm -hmm. timeless and affects people Mm -hmm. the way that those records have affected me that is really the happiest I could ever be Hmm.
3: And what do those albums have in common? Do they have anything in common that, that you take inspiration from?
4: I would say honesty, hmm. probably, would be the big thing. That's the thing I look for the most in music.
3: Is honesty. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? How do you lie in your music?
4: <laughs> I, I, don't mean, I don't know. Ask the people like Katy Perry who aren't writing uh-huh. their own music.
3: Okay. So it's when the music is coming
4: from the heart of the artist, of Well the even, artist making even, it. I, I shouldn't rag on Katy Perry because <laughs> Damn I mean, you, she Katie. can she can sing, but... On the record, she's not singing. That's the thing. It's all so processed and so formulated to sound a specific way Mm -hmm. that there's really nothing there. It's not really a performance. Hmm.
3: So is that what you strive for then, is to make sure that that in your music you're really speaking from the heart
4: and really speaking honestly with with your rhythms and your music? Definitely, and lyrically uh, a lot as well. Uh, Adrian and I write the lyrics, and Mm -hmm. we... Spend a lot of time on them.
5: Yeah. Yeah, we're really trying to. Con- we're really trying to um, create something, that. Start again. Yeah. Start that sentence again. We're really trying to create something uh, that is original, and um, with so many ideas out there, it really takes a lot of effort to find something that comes from our own personalities, um, yet is palatable to people f- uh, for people to listen to. Mm-hmm. So we're really trying to kind of, you know, find this middle ground between um, a, a unique creativity mm-hmm. and something that can bring people together.
3: Do you feel a lot of pressure as the grounder and the uh, the one kind of uh, keeping the band, you know, giving it uh, that, that track, that well, road? I think, I think that we follow?
5: support each other quite a bit, and, um, you know, I think that, that we're all pretty open to each other's ideas, and, and so... You know, I might try something that you know might might not catch everyone's attention right away, but I think that we're pretty good to work together hmm. to uh, to find something that we all like.
3: Now you're a new member uh, to the team, is that right?
5: That's uh, relatively new, yeah.
3: Yeah, tell me about that. How 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 relative?
5: <laughs> uh, well, it's been uh, just a little bit over a year now. Yeah. Um, I was um, just at the. I've been in a number of bands uh, before this one, and I actually had become frustrated with. Uh, uh, bands just n- never seeming to work out. Mm-hmm. Um, usually for one reason or another there's, you know, some animosity between members or there's motivation problems or whatever, it, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> motivation
3: problems. <Yeah. laughs> that sounds like a medical term. <laughs> <laughs> so,
5: so I, I think that's the norm for most Yeah, I think, yeah. I think you know, especially, especially creative types. Especially creative motivation types. Is, you know, we spend hours upon hours in our in our uh craft mm-hmm. and um we don't always see Gratification from our efforts, so it is very easy to to lose motivation. Uh, these guys have it. I, th- I, yeah, I truly believe they have it. And uh, so, you know, we we met at uh, at one of my solo shows, and um, I listened to their music, and what was so appealing to me is that it definitely had a unique sound to it, and uh, it's not it's not something that you might expect to hear, you know. You, when you listen to it you don't expect all the changes you don't expect mm-hmm. you know oh yeah I've heard that before kind of mm-hmm. thing
3: mm-hmm.
5: and uh,
3: did you guys have um, a, a lead singer before or were you purely an instrumental band
4: when the band first started yeah. uh, I was singing but I never really enjoyed it okay so that's kind of the thing is I've always been thrust into the role of mm-hmm. lead singer uh, just because nobody else would do it <laughs> and and any time I've ever worked with another vocalist, there's been those motivation problems. Right. and So it's never really worked out. Mm-hmm. And then I saw Adrian performing at his first solo show ever after he was out of another band that he was like, oh, I hate this, I'm going to yeah. do my own thing. And ironically, I met him there because a friend of ours, mutual friend, Uh, told me to come down to the show and Mm. I did and I saw him and I said do you want to sing on one song on our record because we had originally um, since we didn't have a vocalist I stopped singing altogether, and we started working on this record Um, we decided that we're just going to make the record and if we don't have a singer we'll find a different vocalist for every song and that was the option if we couldn't find somebody but luckily we did
0: luckily they did that's yes. something that Battles does um, and I know Fond of Tigers they recently with their last album Continent Western did went what? from instrumental to verbal Okay, so yeah it's uh, you know there's a certain vocals have a certain layer you can add mm-hmm. and they can be a crutch so once you've already proven that you don't need them it's nice to play with them I guess yeah
3: so uh, Amusia has two upcoming shows on April 4th and April 8th. The April 4th show is at the Media Club. And uh, on April the 8th, uh, I'm just looking at the calendar here. Oh, the 4th is tonight. So they have a show tonight at uh, the Media Club. And then on Sunday, they've got another show at the Railway Club. So two great opportunities. Oh, three. On, uh, wow, they are, they are busy. On uh, April 13th, which is next Friday, they'll be at Joe's Apartment on Granville Street so three great opportunities to check them out Uh, and I'm simply looking at their their website and you can do the same by going to amusia.com which is A-M-U-S-I-A amusia.com and uh, get more details on uh, their upcoming dates and uh, you know see pretty pictures and download music and their SoundCloud and Bandcamp all that stuff so check them out
0: Now, um, I was going to talk about this a little bit later during books, which I'm so excited about, but uh, you are going to have a little bit of coverage for us next week, and I thought maybe you could give people a little taste about something that's happening at the Colch.
3: Well, I'll give you a tiny little taste because I have to run out of the studio right now to interview Carmen Aguirre. Nice. Yes, and these are exactly for the events that you speak of. Um, Carmen is doing two things at the CULCH in the next little while. And uh, for those who don't know, uh, Carmen Nguere wrote a book called Something Fierce. Uh, It has won uh, several awards, namely, and uh, most recently, the uh, CBC Canada Reads Competition
0: And it's nominated for BC Book Prize, which we'll talk about later.
3: That's right. And it was long-listed for the Charles Taylor Prize for mm. Literary Nonfiction. Um, it's a great book. It's a very lively read. It's very easy to just get sucked right into uh, the story, which is uh, basically about Carmen's um, growing up. It's about her mother and, and about herself when she, was, when she was young and how her, her mother took her and her little sister, and they just left Vancouver uh, and went on revolutionary journeys in South America. So it's like instantly in the first chapter, you're like, oh, my God, they're going to the airport, and they're leaving behind Vancouver, and they have to take on fake names, and it's like, it, it just, it's quite gripping, I have to say. So, uh, and then, it won, you know, it won all these awards, and it's been very topical. So uh, the cult has kind of um, scooped in to um, to give another platform for for Carmen to to uh, show off her stuff um, now that it's really hit the limelight uh, which is exciting for us because because um, like I say it's a great book and uh, so now we have a chance to get a reading. So this is coming up April 9th which is Monday. Um, what are you trying to tell me Megan?
0: Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Just writing notes. <laughs> I,
3: can't, I can't multitask. I can either talk on the radio or look at notes.
0: Adam <laughs> always used a producer for this very reason. <laughs> I do not and I realize why now. <laughs> when I hosted the show. Um, so
3: the first event is coming up on Monday, and this is a reading, uh, a reading of Something Fierce Memoirs of a Revolutionary Daughter, and uh, she'll be there on the stage, and uh, we'll read from the book. And then, a few weeks later, May 1st through the 12th, will be Blue Box Which uh, picks up on similar themes The description here says Blue Box investigates Carmen Aguirre's remarkable life As an underground revolutionary in Chile It's a story of terror, romance, fear And abandon That takes us from the dangerous mountain passes of Chile To the perilous roller coasters of Hollywood Um, So uh, not 100% sure here But it seems like to be a theatrical uh, version of Of the book, or at least some of the same stories. Well,
0: you can confirm or deny that when you...
3: (laughs) Speak to her right now. Speak to her right now. So I've got to go.
0: Get the heck out of here.
3: Thanks for having me, Megan.
0: Oh, thanks for coming. And I want to tell you guys uh, something uh, that's happening at the Museum of Anthropology until May 27th. It's called Forest 1. Now, Dr. Annie Ross is a weaver and assistant professor in First Nation Studies at SFU. And she has covered a 1956 Nash Metropolitan, uh, a car that she really loved as a youngster, in traditional and contemporary West Coast materials. She's reclaimed bark from clear-cut cedars, as well as other types of quote-unquote waste and craft materials, including yarn, plastic flowers, old for coats, anything you can think of. Um... I first thought that maybe just by seeing a picture of the car or, you know, getting a little description of it, I might be able to interview her. But after seeing it in the MOA, I really was astounded at how much detail is in it and how many things that I kept finding over, you know, the 20 minutes, half an hour that I looked at just this car. It, uh, and she, during our interview, even talked a little bit about the other things that I have missed. So it's definitely worth a, a look-see. And I wanted to talk to her a little bit about um, what the various elements meant to her. It's a very political work about things like colonization, um, the environment, uh, connection to tradition. Uh, but. We started talking a little bit about how the project came to be
4: for me there's records that are timeless
0: and then what i did was i played the wrong interview so we are going to play the correct interview with annie she's a very soft-spoken woman uh, but very passionate and uh, it's an interesting interesting theme this episode about the um different points of view of of Connection and spirituality. We had the play uh, Last Days of Judas Iscariot, and now we have a little bit about uh, connection to uh, our humanness and spirituality through nature and tradition. But as I said, we started talking about how this project came to be.
6: I had done a project that was around recycled fabrics and I made a whole series about genetically modified food on wall hanging. And then I I started this uh, items I found in the trash and little figurines and wrapping them in discarded wool uh, as if they were going to a big feast party. And so the car just seemed like a continuation of all of that. Mm -hmm. And then interviewing people who had experiences in the nature and making stories and wood carving from that on old cabinet doors. So it was just—it's one of the projects that was going on alongside that. I just happened to have the car in my living room. <laughs> oh, just happened to. But, well, I had—I had a partner at the time that was very supportive and found the Nash Metropolitan in a barn in Oregon. It's an amazing had, artifact. <laughs> it, it's really great, and it was my favorite car when I was a young person. When I was sixteen and thinking, you know, oh wow, wasn't it wonderful to drive and that freedom of driving? But that was also during the time of one of the um, whether feigned or real oil crisis in the U.S., and people were waiting in long lines for gasoline. And so the car in people's memory and in, in the culture of the Western world and what that means now and the idea of trash and how people throw things away instead of fixing them or working with them, and it's part of this mentality of not really seeing things for what they truly are in a spirit form. So really, all the projects are linked by that idea, mm-hmm. and how really humans can't just sit by and just kind of live. It's up to us to work and to make the be part of the transformative affect of love and relationship, and that's where making comes in. Maybe besides the bark, were there any materials that you found particularly interesting or difficult to work with? Um, I love. The pizza box. The strapping tape I thought was very important because it's from warehouse boxes and wrapping of warehouse boxes. And it's something that's used once and thrown away even though it has all its life is still left. <laughs> and it's not going to degrade in the landfill. It's very slippery. It's very sharp. It'll cut you. Um, so in that way it reminded me of baleen. I was thinking about Covered bottles. You know those bottles that were for trade, and people would cover them with grass or cedar, depending on where you are, especially in this part of the world, mm-hmm. and make them into something beautiful. So it was really kind of about that. But also, we have the car and the all the changes that the car brought the fossil fuel economy, the roads, highways, smog, pollution, um, and how it's really opened up travel where we don't walk or really see the land when, with the car. And now with, with we have to do something about, we cannot live with this fossil fuel economy. We no. simply cannot survive with it. Canada has been very slow to realize the Kyoto, Kyoto Accord, um, the present push to open up the tar sands um, in an obscene way. It's already an obscenity on the land. It's not sustainable. It's not workable. It's our death knell, and that's the sad part of this project, is the realization that the type of consumption of fossil fuels cannot continue, simply cannot. So our vehicles have to become something else, and they have to become, be realized for the treasure that they are. So instead of two cars in a house, maybe one or none, And we have to really think about how precious the limited land is and react accordingly. So you have the irony of the cute little car and the tragedy of what it really is in terms of fossil fuels emission. And that's what it really means to be talking about as well, relationship. So every living thing on that car, the camas, The sturgeon, that's one of the oldest fish you'll find, the lake, the rain, um, sasquatch, the frogs, all of those, the whales, are about what we have always coexisted with in relationship, in community, and those things that are being severely compromised by industrial food manufacture and uh, multinational corporate greed. What were the animals, uh, the stuffed uh, taxidermied um, animals that were in the car? They're from the Value Village. Okay. And two ermines. It, imagine them flat, and they have little clips, and people would clip them together and wear of them in like a stole yeah. from the 50s or 60s, and they have the old Bakelite clips. And they were, they, a lot of care was taken in making them into clothing, and I'm sure people uh, coveted them. I imagine. The seats are also covered in old fur coats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed that. Um, and there's two companion pieces to the car, uh, Medicine Man Crown of Thor's, which is a full black bear animal mount, and Rain Snow Human, and those are up at the Squamish Lil'wat Cultural Center right now. Beloved Ones who've been, who were hunted, they're old taxidermy mounts that I found on Craigslist and repurposed them with beads to talk about the sacred nature of living things and how those things are taken and then also end up in the trash pile.
0: There's a bit of a strange cut in there and I just wanted to um, reiterate that she has two companion pieces, uh, a beaded stuffed black bear and a beaded stuffed uh, mountain goat, rain snow human, and they are at the Lillibut Cultural Center and Forest One is at the Museum of Anthropology here at UB, uh, UBC. And as I mentioned, one of the really interesting things is being able to go through all the details that she's put on from all different areas of life, from you know, the home to pieces of things that might otherwise be thought of as trash to traditional materials. And there are a couple other exhibitions that I enjoyed uh, just poking around in. Katsu: uh, The Art of Life. Art and Life of Doug Cranner. And that's from March 17th until September 3rd. It actually was really big in the 1960s and was a success in the Indigenous, modern or traditional made contemporary art. One of the first Native artists in BC to own his own gallery. And it's a very interesting... Display. It has work and words from his students as well. And he was very influential, especially in terms of bringing those traditional elements um, that you would associate with local Aboriginal art and the contemporary elements that you would associate with contemporary art. Um, you know, the smoothness of the line, blocked color, etc. So that's very interesting, especially his abstract series painted on mahogany plywood. There's also a green dress, objects, memories, and the museum. And this is a bit of a you know, a catch-all for some interesting artifacts that the museum has collected worldwide. So I would check that out as well. But the first one was definitely my favorite. It was so artistic and unartistic at the same time. Very craftwork, um, non-traditional kind of styles. And the other thing that I was actually kind of disappointed about was that you couldn't sit in the car. And I really feel that you know, museums are are doing better with these kind of interactions. But at the end of the day, um, you know, you want to be able to really get involved in a piece like this, which is so different from a painting on the wall. So I would definitely check that out. You can learn more about it. Her work, such as her other work, Medicine Man, Crown of Thorn- Thorns and rain No Human at AnnieMyBlog.wordpress.com. Um the Little Walk Cultural Center at slcc.ca and moa.ubc.ca. We are going to take a quick break, and when we get back, it's books, books, books. So we have a little bit of um, more CITR promotion to come at you, because we got to promote ourselves, and then we will do a little bit of literature. Here we go.
1: Are you walking to class? Are you grabbing a coffee? Got lunch hour to kill? We invite you to fill the silence of your day with the sound of some live music. Music on the Mind, UBC's newest student concert initiative invites the School of Music out of the concert hall into the schoolyard. Ten concerts at five venues on one campus. Let's get Music on the Mind at UBC. For more information, visit ubcmusiconthemind.com. Sponsored by CITR Radio, Vancouver, BC.
0: How do you go from this...
2: Would not to this. One, two, the two, the three, the four.
0: your parents Shakespeare, this ain't. Welcome to the Bombity of Errors, an adaptation of MC Willie Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors. Elizabethan times get pumped up with a little hip hop flavor as actors sing, rap, and rhyme with a live DJ on stage. Bombity of Errors runs from April 4th through the 22nd at Studio 16 in Vancouver. For tickets and more information, just go to brownpapertickets.com.
5: Become a friend of CITR and get great discounts
0: downtown at 212 Productions, Beat Street Records, Blim, Dream Apparel, The Fall Tattooing, The Kiss Store, Heart and Soul Clothing Inc., Hits Boutique, Pacific Cinema Tech, Project Space, Scratch Records, Vinyl Records, Woo Vintage, The Zoo Shop, and Across the Bridge, North Vancouver Music Gallery.
5: It pays to be a friend of CITR. To learn more, come visit us in room 233 of the sub on UBC campus or check us out online at citr.ca.
0: Hello, everyone. We're back on the art support in CITR 101.9, citr.ca, if you want to stream it online. You heard a quick promo there for the Bombardy of Errors from April 4th until the 22nd, and we should have some coverage on that next week. Um, But just to reiterate it's a adaptation of Shakespeare. And that after having just, you know, seen a lot of classic theater, I think it's always interesting to see that extra take. So um, not to do too much of a dig at Colin Thomas, but these guys do not think that they're better than Shakespeare. Um, No wonder CITR is sponsoring this event. Um, We have CITR alum Brian Cochran, as well as many other UBC students. We also have Funk My Life's ochre Chen he also does our DJ training program and he is going to be um the live DJ on cha- on stage there. So I look forward to that and you know she the professor uh, the director is a professor, Department of Theater here. So it's a family production um a CITR and UBC family production. So please do check that out. It looks to be a really fun time. And now we have a little something special. <laughs> books, 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 Oh, I really missed that. So I wanted to, uh, we have a couple of reviews here, and we also have a little bit of information about the BC Book Prizes, which have just been announced. Now I wanted to talk a little bit about Maleficium. Maleficium uh, is Italian books. Um book. <laughs> it's going to be released in April 2012 and it's by Martine Desjardins and translated by Fred A. Reed and David Hommel. And this book is really singular. I found it both aesthetically extremely interesting as well as very political in a non-political way. And I'll explain. You have seven confessions with a special eighth right at the end. And they're written in the form of confessions from these travelers to the same priest. You never hear from the priest, it's only the confessions. And they tell the stories of their visits to exotic lands, mm, for the most part to bring back some sort of resource, whether they're following some sort of obsession, be it spice or uh, carpets or these exoticisms. And so they're telling the story when they met this woman with a hair lip. And she has this mystical, spiritual quality, very sensual, very sexual. And so we have these gender politics, we have these politics of exoticism and of colonization, but really all you can think about is the lushness of the prose and just the very interest of the story, what is going to happen next. Very suspenseful. The stories are linked, not necessarily um, only through character, the overlap of the character of this woman and the priest, but also the format. It's very oral. It's like you're listening to a story. And then at the end, of course, there's the twist. And I will not ruin it for you because even after Kevin from Talon Books said, I won't ruin it for you, but there's a big twist at the end. I knew it was coming. I knew something was going to happen and it blew me away It's so well-written, and it doesn't pull any punches. I would really uh, recommend it to anyone. It's Maleficium, Martine Desjardins, and it's Talon Books. And the reason I mention this is they are known for their literary publishing, so this is something that I've actually read twice. With a lot lot of time in between, which is not something I normally do, but it does have the very rich texture that will uh, give you something new each time. The other review we have is actually from one of our uh, volunteers, one of our new contributors, Laura, and she is reviewing Throne, which is British Columbia's apprentices of Bernard Leach and their contemporaries, which is quite the mouthful, but it's basically an art book, and it's actually published and uh, inspired by the Morris and Helen Belkin Art Gallery's 2004 exhibition, Throne, and its influences and intentions of West Coast ceramics. And there's a whole bunch of authors talking about their work, um, and it's published by our own Belkin Gallery. And she has a a couple of things to say about it. It outlines the unexpected history of the art of potting in BC. Um, It is an understated art that began growing popular in BC around the 20th century. Um, BC was known to be one of the strongest bastions in the world for the practice of studio pottery. And it sounds kind of silly, but If you've ever been out there on the beaches or hiking, um, the quality of the inspiration and the quality of the ground around here, I I can understand why we would be big in the pottery scene. But anyway, it's a collaborative book with an array of perspectives on the art, Uh, teachers, students, craftspeople. And the book has everything you might want to know about pottery in BC and as an art in general. Um, She says it's very impressively put together with short chapters that cover completely different aspects of the art with amazing photography. And the stories within are compelling and inspiring. Um, She says she's never really taken much of a particular interest in potting or really any art, but it really connected and intrigued her. Um, and left her with a newfound interest and respect for pottery in BC. Um, yeah, she says congratulations on a job well done to the Belkin Art Gallery for putting that together. And much like in Forest One, I think that there's a, a renewed or renewed interest in these types of arts that are may not necessarily be considered high art so in something like forest one or even with throne you have the combination of contemporary art theory and traditional and um, craft styles of art and i think it's something that people should start thinking about as part of both the history of uh, visual arts and probably the future So, the BC Book Prizes have been announced, everyone. You can check everything out on bcbookprizes.ca. And Something Fierce that we talked about earlier uh, is actually one of the nominees. We've talked about uh, Throne, that's also a nominee. And in past episodes of The Arts Report, we've talked about Charlotte Gill's Eating Dirt and Ezzy Edugayen's Half Blood Blues. I'm actually working on another one of the nominees, Measure of a Man, right now. And uh, Laura will be back uh, in the next week or two with some more reviews on some of the poetry. Uh, Discovery, uh, Discovery Passages by Gary Thomas Morse is something that I've really enjoyed, and that's nominated as well. So congratulations to everyone who's been nominated. Um, there's seven categories altogether, including the Lieutenant Governor Award that will be announced early April. Um, The rest of the categories will be announced Saturday, May 12th uh, at the BC Book Prize Soiree. Um, No, sorry. The BC Book Prize Soiree will be when the Lieutenant Governor's Award for Literary Excellence will be announced. The rest will be announced uh, mid-May. So we'll be back to you um, with more information. But they're taking place right now and people are considering. So please check them out at bcbookprizes.ca. Go through Find a few books. Tell us what you think. You can always email us at arts at citr.ca if you think that you have a a review worth airing. Um, We have a lot of nonfiction, which is really great. It's really making a comeback, and I find a well-written nonfiction piece um, can be as, if not more so, entertaining than fiction because you have that added spark that this actually happened to this person in some way. Um, So we'll have more reviews as things come up, but check them out if you want to know more what to read next. So that has been Books, and it was really exciting, wasn't it? <laughs> books, books, books. What? Oh, thank you, C- UBC Acapella Group. I know this is actually literary, but uh, I thought I'd separate it out from Books because we are um, also going to welcome another uh, reviewer, Sierra. She's another new reviewer for us, and uh, she visited the event's humorist's literally funny, and I thought I would give you uh, her take on this event that happened uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, at the Havana, I believe. And Sierra's a new, as I said, a new volunteer, and uh, she really, really enjoyed the show, so here is her glowing review.
2: Hey guys, this is Sierra here. On March 25th, I was at Havana Theater on commercial, and I saw a show called Humorists Literally Funny. It was a really interesting show, so I'm just going to tell you a little bit about it. Sarah Bino brought in four authors, and what she wanted to do was get a cozy little space with an audience and get these authors to read tidbits of their writing. First writer, Steve Burgess. Steve is a freelance writer and author of the book Who Killed Mum? He personified this weird college prof artist poet guy with his hands on his hip and his glasses on the tip of his nose looking down at his writing it was really cool I think the best part of Steve's performance was we really really got this accent he had of his Scottish grandmother who he loathed an author has this extra ability to give you something more of what they meant with their writing when they can actually say it in person which you can't get as a reader and he mentioned that and that's what I really really enjoyed about his performance so he took advantage of that and told us some some good stories Uh, the next author we had was Dina Delbouchia. She's actually here from UBC. She got her MFA in the creative writing program. My first impression of her was just this super bubbly, charismatic girl. I I wanted to be friends with her. I did. She was wearing pink tights. And she got up and she read from a collection of pamphlets that she's written. She wanted to create something that kind of poked fun at all those self-help books. And those pamphlets you get at, like, your community center or library. She read a couple of things from her pamphlets. One of them called How to Make Jealousy Work for You. Another was How to Be Angry. And her last one, which is really interesting, <laughs> A Manual for Being Sad, Mastering the Art of Being Sad. She did a great job at getting us involved. We did a sad lib. A mad lib is a story with spaces in it, and you ask your audience to give a noun or a, an adjective or something like that, and then... You fill that in and it makes a really funny story. It was made for kids. So she has created it with sad libs. So she got all the audience to pick a pick a word and put it in. It was hilarious. We had a reading from Jen Farrell. My first impression of Jen was she was very, very well-dressed and she looked very poised and she was just very professional. And then she opened her mouth and started reading her work and I was shocked. It was really good and really funny, but it was pretty vulgar. But... Not in a bad way, just shocking from what I thought that she would be like. And so what she did was she read two things. The first one was a fake blog about Jennifer Aniston, which was good. And her last one, which was the most interesting for me, was an ode to Hamilton, the hometown she grew grew up in. And it was written in the style, kind of a letter to an ex-boyfriend. And it was basically a whole narration of her crazy escapades as a teenager. And it was just amazing to me the kinds of things that she was telling the audience and I, I laughed hard. It was really awesome, actually. And that leads us to our last one. Our last author was Bile Nickerson. Bile was my favorite. He walked up, and I I just wanted to go and give him a hug. He was just this lovable man, so calm, and he had the most rhythmic voice. And I was just, I could have listened to him all night. I was expecting, I don't know what, but he got up there and the most shocking things came out of his readings the one poem he did started out talking about polar bears and how their black eyes and black nose stand out and so they cover them with their paws as camouflage and then from that bam went right into talking about bleaching of the nether regions (laughs) that was not expected at all but hilarious i think i laughed for like five minutes straight i couldn't stop so those are the four authors my main impressions of them i suppose I went with my sister, and we had no idea what we were walking into. I really didn't know. I didn't know how I would feel about being read to for two hours straight, but the time flew by, perfectly entertained the entire time. And also, Canadianism, three out of the four authors had at least one piece that had to do with Canada. So talking about GM Place or hockey or a hometown, the Hamilton, which I didn't notice until thinking about it after, which was cool because... As an audience member, I could relate to almost everything they were talking about. So, yeah, that was my night at Havana Theatre with Sarah Bino Entertainment, the humorist's literally funny. It was awesome of Sarah, actually. She did her own reading at the very beginning, which I really enjoyed as well. Uh, she puts a whole bunch of stuff on in Vancouver, actually. You guys should definitely check it out. She's got Teen Anx Night and Say What? Readings of deliciously rotten writing. All very interesting, so check her out online, and I recommend her stuff. It was, won- it was wonderful.
0: Thanks, Sierra. Um, that's Sierra's first review for us on the Arts Report. And uh, thank you very much to us uh, for recording that. Um, I could go on about Sarah Bino, but what I would just say is go to www.sarabino.com And uh, usually what we do is we, we do the promo before and after um, a review or an interview. But I just loved how she said, say wa, Say wa." and I wanted to include it. The next show of say wa well, is April eighteenth. So not next Wednesday but the Wednesday after. And it is the third Wednesday of every month at the Cottage Bistro. So if you missed last time um please go and see it it's it's quite funny and it's launched in 2010 so it's been at the comedy festival um, vancouver international poetry festival the olio festival and then she also does her teen angst nights and that was humorists literally funny which is an extension of those other projects so uh, please check her out so that's our show i am really happy to have uh adam doing his interview with Musa, Dr. Annie Ross, thank you, Stephen Devin, Devin, uh, or sorry, Drevin, from Judas Iscariot, and Sierra and Laura for their reviews. Um, you know, this has been the Arts Report, and we are on every Wednesday at five to six, and we want to tell you a little bit about the arts in Vancouver, so please find us at CITR underscore arts report on Twitter, Facebook the art support on CATR uh, and subscribe to our podcast. You um, usually hear real to real at this time but uh, no real to real today unfortunately so um, after the lovely in- outro that I will remember to play this week, we are going to listen to a little said the whale, uh, their latest album Little Mountain. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.
1: Outside. I sent you back just the smoothest rock
3: I could find Accompanied by just a couple of words came to
1: mind It's an old concept Send the letters
6: again Well thought out, we hear written in pen Paperless here is a thing of the past
3: Cutting down the trees and using our guide